0: Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to reimagining love. In today's episode, we are discussing the painful topic of toxic relationships. Yes, it is a tender and difficult subject, but I am joined by a relationship trauma expert who's here to help us navigate through this topic with gentleness and with compassion. I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Laura Copley. Dr. Laura is a licensed professional counselor, a certified trauma specialist, and a relationship expert. She has spent the last decade researching post-traumatic growth and cultivating pathways to positive transformation. She was a researcher and instructor at Penn State and she's the owner and director of her successful private practice, Aurora Counseling and Wellbeing in Virginia. And now, in her debut book, Loving You is Hurting Me, a new approach to healing trauma bonds and creating authentic connection, Dr. Laura is giving us a new understanding of trauma bonds in the victim-abuser dynamic. Combining vulnerable personal stories with clinical research, Dr. Laura gives us insight into what she calls the hero's journey, the journey of understanding our origin story and our current dynamics so that we can transcend our traumas and transform our lives. Today, we discuss how traveling this path opens us up to more authentic connection, as well as how the cycle of addiction connects with trauma-bonded relationships. And finally, we explore together a listener's question about her frustration with her sister's toxic intimate relationship. Trauma betrayal and abandonment are certainly not easy topics for us to dive into, but I'm really grateful that Dr. Laura is here to bring a gentle, loving, wise energy to this conversation. And above all, she reminds us of the power of relational self-awareness. When we understand ourselves and how our unhealed attachment traumas show up today, we open ourselves up to growth and to healing. I hope that you take good care of yourself as we explore this topic. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Long time no see. That's right. That's (laughs) right. We met last year at my favorite Uh conference of the year, Psychotherapy Networker. The best conference. I agree. So, Laura, we are going to dive into your brand new book, which is a beautiful, heartfelt, robust offering. And I can't wait to dive in and talk all about it. But I want to start By asking you the question that we ask all of our guests on this show, are you ready for the relational self awareness question? Bring it. Bring it. Yeah. (laughs) So, Laura, what would you say is right now a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you these days?
1: Yes. Yes. So, this one came so quick. I knew exactly what the answer was going to be, but letting people show up for me without feeling like a burden (laughs) is something that I'm working on. I was absolutely the hero child in my family, my origin family. And um, as that hero child, it was my responsibility. Of course, I didn't know this at the time. I thought this is just what you did as a kid, but it was my responsibility to redeem my parents of their shortcomings And to give them something that makes them shine, that makes them proud. Like it was, I needed to be their reason. I needed to redeem them. And so in my relationships, I realized that I was constantly taking on the role of the hero, the savior. And so recognizing that I'm taking on that role is unfair to my partner because (laughs) it's not letting my partner have the opportunity to show up for me? And and so then the question I'm asking myself is, who am I if I'm not always the one that's saving the day? So that's a big one for me that I'm working on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how is your partner receiving
0: these opportunities to show up for you? Like, What's it like for them to get to show up for you?
1: I mean, it's new, right? So (laughs) these moments that I have unintentionally and unconsciously came in and, and did so much of the work. Now that I'm stepping back a little bit, um, there's, there's a, there's a pause that's in between things as, as he's trying to figure out like, Oh, oh, this is, this is, she's waiting for me right now. Like, this is my opportunity to take care of her. And, then the both of us getting used to what that pause and that break is because we're like expecting the other one to fill in the space to make that move to take the initiative. Um, and so it is about having conversations about what that space is like because it's uncomfortable for the both of us. Yeah. But then also just I think a part of the reality that happens as two people are learning new ways to bond and connect in that space.
0: I can imagine it's so important for you to tolerate the discomfort of the pause, right? Because <laughs> I could imagine what I would do in that spot. It's like, okay, just kidding. Never mind. I'll just do what I've always done because clearly this is not going to work out. So there's, so in order to, for there to be a pause for the dance to go differently, mm-hmm. you yes. have to tolerate the discomfort of, Okay, I'm open, I'm open, I'm waiting, I'm available. Are you stepping forward? Are you not stepping forward and just being with that without kind of foreclosing it and being like, oh my God, this is all a huge mistake and it can't, it can't be different. And I risked and I it was not worth it.
1: Absolutely. And I realized for me, when he becomes aware that he did not. Step forward as maybe quickly as he would have wanted or as I wanted. I do then go into that extra care for him and that extra nurturing for him. Like, Oh no, it's okay. You are doing your best. And I like overly taking care of the situation, which is also something I need to work on because it then minimizes the responsibility on his part to also do the work it kind of is sort of like mate it's minimizing one end and almost negating what i need so i think we can find a way or at least i know i can find a way to both recognize how to get comfortable with the pause and that even when he's starting to feel bad or feel guilty for not stepping up as quickly as maybe he would have wanted that i don't have to go into this Extra, extra, over caretaking of his emotions, either. Right, because there's a way, like you said, there's a way
0: that it undoes your ask, and it also reinforces because because that feeling bad for him is some measure of shame, right, sure. or discomfort, feeling like a disappointment, whatever his origin story is around that. And when you over caretake in that moment, it reinforces that message that oh my god, this really was an f up. I really did you know, drop the ball here. This was really what I did or what I didn't do, what I missed here was bad, right? So I can right. imagine that you're over, you're in an effort to make him feel better. It's like it reinforces this idea that it really was this huge miss rather than, oh my gosh, we're clunky as hell because yeah. we because we are trying some new moves here. So of course it's clunky,
1: you know? Yeah, clunky is such a good word for it. And, and not only is that what I'm I'm not trying to communicate that, but that's what it implies. But for me, it's unfair to me because I'm negating what I also need as well. And I, I'm just giving him this extra comfort and extra cushion. And then I'm over here. Well, wait a second. Like I, I, I actually also deserve a little bit of, Hey, this is clunky. I know you're doing your best. All of that sort of like reinforcement too. So doing the work to breaking the old dance is, I love your word. It's clunky. It's messy. (laughs) It comes with a pause. Um, that pause is going to be uncomfortable. You can do uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. And let's keep, let's keep at
0: this thing. Beautiful. Well, thank you for starting us off in that place. I think it really like leads us into our next topic, which is loving you is hurting me. A new approach to healing trauma bonds and creating
1: authentic connection. This is, this is your debut book. You did it. This is the baby. This is the baby, which I don't know if you knew this. This came from the COVID year at the networker where we were online and I did a presentation on toxic relationships and there happened to be a publisher that was a listener. Who reached out to me and said, "This needs to be a book. Mm-hmm. There's nothing out there quite like this. And can we do it?" And I took that idea and I ran with it and I gave the outline. And what ended up happening is, you know, long story short, this book went up for a bidding war uh, between <laughs> several different <laughs> publishers, and <laughs> and I mean, it just it felt like this overnight. Amazing experience where this idea that I had that I've been doing so long with in my therapy practice all of a sudden became a book. Uh, I ended up getting to write it in Italy, which was a beautiful experience in itself. And, um, now it is just released. It is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and so many other places. But yeah, what a, what a wild ride in a short amount of time again, hat tip to Networker right. for giving you the
0: space to present these ideas. And then kudos to the person who was watching you and was like, yeah, this is a book. And then I love, I love that people fought to have the opportunity to publish you. That's so What a wonderful story. And it is, I mean, Laura, it's, it's beautiful. It is incredible. It is part memoir. It is a deep, deep therapeutic journey. You hold the reader's hand, start to finish in a deep, thoughtful, step-by-step guided journey where you are you're both alongside because your story is woven throughout the book and you are and you are clearly holding your expertise. It's you've you found a you found a beautiful place to be that kind of both and of fellow traveler and capable, competent leader, um, which I think gives you that much more buy-in with your reader, right? Because you're not sitting in some holier than thou place. Uh You are just like, okay, so here's me, here's you, let's go for it. And it's grounded in all of the best research around what we know about trauma and all of the the elements that you clearly have studied and, and trained in.
1: Yes, thank you. And what I really wanted to blend with this book was this Relationship oriented, attachment oriented, all, all the good research on what it means to repair problems in relationships from this deeply heartfelt place, how to form healthy relationships. But then I come from like, my area of expertise is complex trauma and trauma that is done at the, at the hands of other human beings. So not just not just natural disasters and war and that sort of things, but the like trauma that is done with people that we were supposed to love or were loving. And I wanted to write something that was able to marry those two ideas in a way that hadn't been done before. And it was really important for me to be able to capture the reader through story because I didn't want it to just be the psychoeducational educational objective, cold writing. I wanted it to be laced with real stories, so that's why there's an aspect of memoir to it, um, but also transformational client stories that it was really important for me to write in a way that made somebody feel it in their gut as they were listening. And so I'm I'm hoping that that is is conveyed and that there are these... Um, the book is a journey in itself. It takes you from your origin to your current relationships and then to the, where relationships can actually go into that place of mutual relationship oriented post traumatic growth.
0: Yeah. It is a hero's
1: journey, as you say. It is the hero's journey. It is the hero's journey. Absolutely. Okay. So Laura, start us off right from the,
0: from the title because you use the word trauma bonds in the title and trauma bonds is one of, you know, I think, one of the beautiful things about this moment that we are in is that there's so much access to psychological materials and ideas and terms, you know, through social media and podcasts. Like there's just been this explosion of somebody who's been in this field for a long time. This is not what this field was like, you know, 20 years ago. I will tell you that. That's right. Trauma bonds is one of those terms that we're using a lot lately. So let's start with your, can you operationalize what you mean when you're talking about a trauma bonded relationship?
1: Yes, and I, I do think that those of us who are working in the area of relationships, I think most of us would agree about my this this definition that I have, but I think we're combating this old school definition of trauma bonding that is very binary and black and white and this or that, where there is this dynamic between an abuser and a victim. With this sense that the, the victim has this complicated loyalty and attachment to their abuser because of this exchange of fear and abuse with intermittent positive reinforcement. So these little breadcrumbings of love and connection. And does that happen? 100%. It is absolutely there. There we, we have domestic violence. We have Stockholm syndrome. That is absolutely an extreme version of a trauma bond. And all that research deserves to be out there. All those books around uh, that topic deserves to be out there. And when that's all that's out there, all of a sudden we have these couples and these individuals that are getting their hands on just that research or just those self-help books and are hyper-identifying themselves or their relationship in that dynamic. And I think we are doing an injustice to those people by only using that definition, abuser, victim, oppressor, oppressed, as this way of talking about the trauma bond. I approach the trauma bond on a spectrum. I think there are mild, moderate, and severe, for lack of better words, to simplify this. I think there are a a spectrum of different ways a trauma bond can manifest itself And I do not think that every trauma bond is one that delights in hurting another person. What I have found, at least in my therapy, is majority of cases, the trauma bond are individuals or couples who are bonded through a shared trauma. So when I flip it in that way, when I say trauma bonds is a bond because of trauma, it feels different. Everything that you're saying makes so much sense. I love
0: this idea of moving from a binary to a spectrum. And I love how you're saying that we're not, we are not diminishing the experiences of people on the extreme end of the spectrum. And we are doing an injustice when we don't expand it. You, in fact, you know, you, you share part of the memoir element of this is, is writing about the demise of your marriage to Matthew. Yes. I think you really captured that idea of being bonded through a shared trauma when you wrote, I'm going to quote you. When you talk about you and Matthew, this is not a story about escaping a bad relationship. This is not a story of an abuser and a victim. This is a story about the collision of the wounded and the broken. When loving each other starts to hurt. When two unhealed human beings with unhealed attachment traumas in their past find their way to each other and desperately try to connect without knowing how. Neither of us was bad. We were wounded.
1: I should have hired you to be my audio recorder of the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I read you well. Beautifully done. I read you well. Beautifully you're a beautiful, done. You're a beautiful <laughs> writer. You're easy to read. <laughs> okay, I want to tease apart a few of those pieces that you speak to. So you're challenging this idea of abuser and victim. And then can you talk to us a little bit about how your unhealed attachment traumas were showing up in that relationship in your marriage?
1: Oh, absolutely. And this took... This took so much time for me to realize that while something wasn't my fault, um, how he reacted and the decisions that he made wasn't my fault, that in the process of our marriage, I was also hurting him. So at least on my end, I was constantly, I, I called it the runner in my book, I was constantly running to the next adventure, to the next goal. Because as the hero child, my job was to do big, great things. And what did that do to Matthew at the time was to make him feel like he was put on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know this at the time because the things that I was doing weren't necessarily what I would call selfish from that very uh, very like Laura-centric kind of way because it looked so important. It looked like volunteering in the Dominican Republic. It looked like going and getting that PhD, um, to help people, right? So it, I, I had a very difficult time understanding his reaction that he eventually fell into because Harry was, I was doing all this self-sacrificial in my narrative work, right? Um, but you know, through time and distance and, and maturing and lots of my own counseling, I realized that what I was doing, it, I mean, even though it does help the greater good, it also was self-serving. I was constantly being rewarded and praised and acknowledged for all these wonderful things. And in the process of doing that, Matthew had a really hard time finding voice and knowing how to set boundaries. His behavior looked like permission. His behavior looked like support. But behind the scenes, he was getting defeated and tired. And the process of doing that, he broke. So like he emotionally broke. And uh, I mean, we write this in the book, so this is not going to be a surprise to anybody. I'm not like letting letting things out of that, but he he had an affair. Um, he found an outlet of getting attention that I didn't know that he was missing. And of course, that tumultuous, we were both in so much pain. It's not that love wasn't there. It was our attachment injuries and our lack of insight and where we come from as individuals and the role that we had to play as a child was still manifesting in our relationship. And it was hurting us without even realizing it. We were bonded Through the roles that we had to take or thought that we had to take, because that was what was reinforced in our family of origin. It was, and it was all that you knew. It was all that you knew. And it was all that we knew. And we met when we were 18, and it became an attachment that had some beautiful aspects to it. Yeah. But at the same time, we were we were not aware of all the work that we had to do
0: you tell a story towards the end of the book about some of the forgiveness work that the two of you have done that is not you know it's not forgiveness that healed the marriage but it is forgiveness Correct. that healed something in each of you and you you give this image of imagining yourself as a dancer and these these jetes uh-huh. these leaps that you were yes. taking Into into the abyss and not realizing that he was there, kind of putting a frisbee. What do you say? (laughs) You know, like he was there, kind of putting plates underneath you. That that was the part that you couldn't see at the time because you had not done your own. You had not done your own healing work, and for him to be putting those plates under you so that you had a safe place to land every time you leapt was all that he knew to do. Right, that kind of. Self-sacrificing. I'll be on the back burner. I'll just put a plate under her so she can land somewhere was, was what he knew to do, right? That's his origin story.
1: Absolutely. The whole time of me doing these grand, beautiful things and, and leaping into this next beautiful goal. Um, I didn't realize at the time and the length of time that we were together that he was always in the background, making sure that I had a safe place to <laughs> land. And this did look like a lot of like logistical work, like, Making sure that, you know, the bills were paid and the house was together and that this, this logistical thing was put in place so that I had the safe place to land. And that if something didn't go right, he was going to sweep in and figure out how to objectively and rationally handle things so that I could shine. And I do honestly believe that was coming from such a place of love.
0: Totally.
1: Love was not the issue. But not recognizing how exhausted he was and me not recognizing how much I was taking it for granted. That was the issue. And it burned us both out. It, it burned him out on a long-term scale. But then the crushing way in which it finally blew up. Yes. Is what broke me. That is an example of a trauma bond, not two evil people. Treating each other from this place of malice, but from two individuals being able to connect in the only ways that they knew how. And sometimes that is painfully and fearfully. Yeah. You know,
0: I'm, I'm just sitting here imagining what's going to make me tear up, imagining the <laughs> listeners, you know, the listeners who will get to hear your story shared in this way because, because your marriage ended with infidelity, where that was the last straw, you easily could have a narrative of you being a victim of the marriage. You know that you were the victim, that you were betrayed, and in you sharing, I don't hear you letting him off the hook. I hear you contextualizing, no. <laughs> contextualizing the end of the marriage in this larger story. And there's something that is so there's such generosity in this offering. So I, I just I thank you for that.
1: Absolutely, and and I will be the first to admit that in the beginning did I play the victim after like, (laughs) boom, like, yeah, like there was a moment in time that I was like, where, what happened to you? Like you changed, like, this is not the Matthew that I know who was, had this endless reservoir of givingness and support. And it, it felt like there was just an infinite amount of that within him, and then all of a sudden, cold, coldness, no caring about my feelings. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And you better believe that I use that language that we find on those bookshelves with all those other books. Again, they have a right to be there because those relationships actually do happen, but I grabbed those books and I was like, oh my gosh, I was married to a narcissist this whole time. I went through that stage too. And it wasn't the whole story. And I'm here to communicate that even if we reactively feel that way for a moment, it's okay um, for many of us to step outside of that when we are safe, when we are grounded, when we're, you know, we have a healthy support system of friends and family and maybe a therapist of our own that we can step back and look at that bigger picture. And say, ah, okay, this is what breaking looks like. When you have been burdened by the role that you've had to take for so long, we do break. So even if you have found yourself feeling like you fall into that role as being, you know, like he was such a, you know, fill in the blank with whatever word you're feeling like he was like, right. right. um, yeah, that's okay too. That makes sense. We're we're reacting.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and you're describing it as it was a place you needed to be, right? You needed to have that chapter and it was not your final destination. Correct. Yes. Okay. So the journey you take us on is from understanding our origin story into understanding the current dynamics is this love or trauma bonding, and then into transcending our traumas and transforming our lives. So So when we're talking about understanding our origin stories, you write that this experience of distrust or broken trust in our, in our early relationships, in our family of origin, generally speaking, occurs in five different ways via abandonment, via betrayal, via humiliation, via injustice, via rejection. Can you, can you like put some meat on those bones and give us a sense of how a listener might start to understand the nature of their kind of wounding in their family of origin around those five big themes.
1: Sure. Um, And when we do origin work, I lead my clients through the idea that maybe once upon a time before what is going on in their current relationships, we experienced some sort of attachment rupture in our family of origin. And it, basically breaks down into these five postures. So were we abandoned? What I mean by abandonment is, did we go through a situation in which the individual, more than likely it's a caretaker, a parent, did we go through a situation where somebody that did love us or did take care of us in his or her own way that she could drop us at some point? So we knew what it was like to be taken care of for a time. And then it stopped. We were either emotionally abandoned, physically left, something along those lines. Betrayal is this sense of, I trusted you. We had this either verbal or nonverbal agreement that we were connected in this sort of way. There was a loyalty and you did something that broke that. You didn't necessarily leave. You might experience remorse, but I no longer have that secure attachment to you. You will now forever be somebody that can do this to me. You now have this capability of hurting me in this way. Injustice is, we can see it at the individual and family scale. Of course, we can see it culturally and within our society as well. In the family sense, injustice is that sense of Something continues chronically to be unfair. For example, the scapegoat child, where I am always the one that's getting in trouble. I am always the one that, you know, has last dibs on something. I'm always the one that gets the broken toys. I'm always the one that gets the old raggedy dirty clothes. Mm -hmm. The butt of the joke. I'm always the butt of the joke. Yeah. I'm always the one that all the blame and shame and criticism and the pain of why something is happening, it gets put on me. So there's an injustice. Um, humiliation. I'm always the one that's getting picked on. Again, you talk about the butt, the butt of the, of the joke. joke. That's also, yeah, yeah the butt yeah. of the joke. I'm always getting picked on. I'm always getting laughed at. I'm, I'm constantly being embarrassed by the family system, the group that is my only chance of belonging to anything. So the humiliation trauma brings in a chronic sense of shame, like there's just something inherently awful about me. And then rejection is the sense of before you even gave me a chance to be accepted, before I was even loved, I was discarded. Mm-hmm. And abandonment and rejection, they, they kind of feel similar, but the way that I pull them apart is abandonment is you once were part of a something and then you were left. Rejection is you didn't even get the chance. You were immediately cast aside. Yeah.
0: So I imagine if somebody's listening to you talk through those five, I imagine that people you know, are feeling a shift in their body, right? As you describe one or more of those, and that's kind of what they're orienting. What else do you recommend in terms of how, how somebody can start to identify? Where how their story fit.
1: Well, and I think as adults, because adults is probably going to be who's listening to this podcast, those five trauma wounds, those five attachment wounds that we might've experienced in our younger years, they get imprinted into our bodies, into the way that we operate and move about the world. And so now what it's going to look like are, it's going to be ways that we protect ourselves from those things happening again. So if we have abandonment trauma, how do we react in relationships so that doesn't happen again? And many of us, that means one of two things. We will either push people away so that they don't get close enough to be important enough to reject us or abandon us, to leave us, or we go into this hyper-pursuer dynamic where it looks clingy and desperate and urgent. And we will create this chasing dynamic with our partner in this way of pleading them, pleading for them not to leave us. And we interpret these very, very tiny things that might just be part of an everyday relationship. We interpret it from that deeply ingrained imprint. Um, so for example, uh, somebody might be running late because they got held up at work um, and this might happen from time to time because life and work, yeah, it, it, it demands that of us sometimes. But somebody who might maybe has a bit of an abandonment fear or an abandonment sensitivity might interpret that as they forgot me. Work is more important than me. Something is going on that I don't know of. He's going to leave me. Um, she actually doesn't want me. We get afraid of things happening before it actually might be happening. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Yeah. What you're highlighting for us is that the way we can begin to notice these traumatic imprints in our life today is in those micro sequences and what happens, the shifts that occur inside of us, the stories we start to make up about what's happening. And you talk us through, you make an interesting parallel to the world of addiction. When you talk about this cycle yeah. that those who've done addiction work know, where it's cue, craving response reward i thought that was a really interesting way for you to help people start to get their heads around like the sequence of events that plays out that is showing where those old trauma imprints are so can you can you talk us through that cycle of cue craving response reward
1: sure when we have these sensations of one of those imprints starting to kind of like boil and fester within us it is evidence that we, well, it's what we feel as evidence that an old pattern is about to happen. Something that happened to us in childhood is about to happen again. And we feel it in our body because something feels familiar. We're getting cued in like, oh, oh, this feels familiar. This is what is happening. And your body will feel it before we tell the narrative. And we get this craving then for connection. We get this craving to find a way to fix the situation or to not let it happen again. Now, the problem with that is you might not actually be disconnected. There might just be a little blip because of life that's happening, but we get this craving inside of us that that begs us for the old rupture not to happen again. Mm -hmm. So we crave connection in the only way that we know how. And our response to that craving is, is that trauma imprint getting reactive. So instead of whew, calmly and getting grounded and thinking with that wise mind around, Oh, you know, she just might be running late for work or yeah, Hey, he, I, I do remember he has a, a phone call that he has to make before tomorrow, whatever it is, or reminding yourselves of all the other ways connection is still present in your relationship. Instead of that, that cue and that craving annies up in our body the level of fear and the level of severity and the level of pain, because we don't want to get abandoned again. And our response tends to be, we either shut down, or we either get in this pursuing, urgent, critical, heightened place. When we shut down, we're trying to protect ourselves and we're kind of numbing out, and we're trying to make that individual that we love less important so that that person doesn't have the power to make us feel that way. When we get urgent and heightened, on the other hand, we're trying to desperately and urgently get them to understand the pain that we are in. And what ends up happening is the reward for that is if you're shut down, your partner then chases you. Your partner's like, where are you? Where'd you go? What's wrong? And then all of a sudden, you're not abandoned, are you? No, you're getting pursued. Mm, that feels so good. We're getting all that reward. But if we're going into that urgent mode, some of that reward might be your partner apologizing and groveling and trying to soften and then making sure that he or she does whatever she can they can to make that not happen again. Now, the problem is that's rigidity, that's lack of flexibility, and that's not giving your partner the opportunity to, in any sort of way, make a slip every now and then without it being some sort of volcanic eruption. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or have a response to you that is authentic to them, right? Yes. To respond... To you, from a place that feels aligned within them, they're yeah, responding to reality. you in a way that is compensatory, or de- you know, designed to offset you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And then when your partner responds to you in a placating kind of a way, part of you knows, and that doesn't—that does not grow trust, right? That feels. I think there's a level at which we feel placated, and so we come away from that interaction like there's been a reward in that our partner placated, and there's a part of us that knows that this is. This is a redo, and this is has not been an, a relationship based interaction.
1: Yes, and and we know somewhere in the depths of us that it actually it also wasn't healing. We didn't really yeah. repair. Yeah, we didn't do something that was genuinely um, authentic and and meaningful. We just put a band aid over the pattern. Yeah, and solve so we the know moment. that. We, we solved the moment and, and you know what? Like, you know, sometimes we do have to solve the moment. Hopefully it's in healthy ways. Um, but ultimately, if this is something that is a trauma attachment imprint and it's a pattern that we keep falling into all the time, we, we can't keep putting band-aids around it. There's something, there are roles that we are both taking in those patterns that we need to identify. And we need to recognize within ourselves. we need to have that empathy with our partner, and we need to come together to make those very clunky pauses and, and build space to to do the work so that trust in the relationship can actually be built. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what happened. You know, when in this part of the book, you give an example that's very similar to the one that you're kind of highlighting here of a couple, a heterosexual couple where the female partner arrives and the male partner is a bit late. And you watch this whole, you watch this whole sequence play out, right? She is, um, she has an abandonment wound. And so she is having a pretty large reaction to him being late despite him saying I caught every red light and I'm so glad I'm here now you know and she is punitive and shuts down and he pursues and you you know you speak from the wise place you give voice to what's happening beneath her criticism and you say he's the only person who has the power to make you feel this way right like this is how much he matters to you yes. his presence Matters to you. You want him here beside you so badly that when he is late, it is painful. So you get beneath the wounded part of her that is, you know, speaking critically and in pursuing in that way. And you're giving voice to what's underneath it.
1: That's absolutely right. And this is so heavily tied to Sue Johnson's work with being able to identify the importance of each other and the reason why it hurts is because the other person matters. And when we can, when we can access that truth, it's helpful in the presence of an individual. If an individual is simply working on this, but in the presence of your partner as well, this can be so powerful to experience because what ends up happening is this vulnerable, uh, um, and I don't mean collapses in a trauma response, but this really the softening into vulnerability and into authenticity. Where what ended up happening is her her partner he just watched her with this wonder and this beautiful awe moment, and he was silent, but he was watching. And he finally realized and was also able to receive. Yeah, it didn't, it doesn't feel good on the surface level, the way she reacts, but underneath it, this is how much she loved him. He also received it too. And for the first time, even in a painful, uncomfortable situation, he turned towards her and held her hand, which had never happened before. Because uncomfortable situations, discomfort, fighting was done uh, with a line in the sand in an enemy territory. This was the first time where the problem became external and they became allies and she needed to go to that vulnerable, soft place. He needed to reach out and it's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah. And it speaks to the strength of the relationship that you had with the two of them, that you, when you offered her an avenue towards softening, she was able to receive that, right? And she, And that he, as she softened, he was able to step in. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is emotion-focused therapy in action. That is. Yes, yes it is. Love yes. it. I know. We love it. Okay. So towards the end of the book, you begin to introduce us to, I mean, there's so oh, there's so much. There's just, there's so much in here. So y'all, you're <laughs> just in so the much. book and read. Yes, thank you. Um, but I want to talk about, before we go to our listener question, I want to talk about how towards the end of the book, you move into writing about post-traumatic growth which is the self improvement that one undergoes by experiencing life challenges, by working through life challenges. Can you tell us a little bit more about post traumatic growth? Why it's important. And then also why, as you say, post traumatic growth needs to be introduced delicately,
1: thoughtfully and intentionally. Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to start with that latter part because there's a reason that I put it at the end of the book. Um, I, I got some pushback from that. Uh, when I was writing the book, I got some pushback because they wanted the beginning to feel like hope. And they wanted the beginning to have all this benefit finding and sort of like a buy-in to do the work. But as a trauma therapist, number one, I know that if I introduced all this, what would look like fluff and all these silver linings to their pain, they would feel some, some people, some readers would feel so far away from that. That would feel impossible. And I worry that introducing it too soon in the book would not actually meet people where they were. People aren't buying the book because they're in a place of post-traumatic growth. No, people are buying the book because they're hurting and they're, and they're struggling, they're suffering and then they want answers and they want a path to feel better. So um, it's towards the end of the book because the hero's journey needs it at, at that place where we return to ourself with the elixir, with the answer, with the remedy to pain. And so what? what is post-traumatic growth? Well, post-traumatic growth is this phenomenon that we're still studying, um, but it's this phenomenon that happens with certain individuals who experienced trauma, who had PTSD or complex trauma, but they were somehow able to transcend their level of being and their level of functioning beyond where they would have been if the trauma didn't happen in the first place. So this is more than just healing. This is more than just getting back to status quo. This is more than just returning back to how you used to feel. This is above and beyond. And so post-traumatic growth can look like um, a deeper sense of meaning and purpose in your life. Being able to access these newfound, untapped strengths that you didn't know that you had um, you see the world through this new possibility. Some of us become more spiritual. Um, some of us are, are able to have a, a deeper sense of empathy for other individuals and we're able to hold that empathy in greater ways. And so I bring this idea later on because I think it's really important for therapy not to end just when Status quo was reached again. Now we're fine. Now we have all these communication skills. Now we've identified our attachment wounds and we're we formed these new patterns. That's lovely, fantastic. And we can still keep going. Do you want to reach this deeper level of meaning and purpose that transcends where you would have been? And the work that I do, because I also pull from a lot of attachment work and emotion focus work and that sort of thing in terms of a relationship therapist, can the relationship as an entity have post-traumatic growth? Mm -hmm. And what would that look like? And so the last section is a book is about how to develop that. Yes. Right, right. Which doesn't
0: ever, you know, there's this tension, right? Of, of not ever saying that what happened was okay. Mm-mm. And I grew from it. And there, there's that, that yes. tension to be held that something can be both painful and growth promoting. Yeah. You know, you were generous throughout the book and in this conversation about sharing your journey of healing and transformation while giving us tools. And so I want to just read one more, one more, uh, read you to you one more time because towards the end of the book you write, I'm at a place now where I can look at my relationships not from the perspective of success or failure, right or wrong, heartful or heartbroken, but from a place of self-awareness and loving kindness. I can radiate gentle love for others and stand in my power at the same time. This does not mean I do not feel the pangs of disappointment and loss. I do. My whole body does. But in building my self-trust, in living through my embodied self, my body no longer has to scream the feelings at me. Can you tell us a little bit more about your life
1: today? Yes, sure. So I I believe we never stop growing. The journey doesn't end in this life. There's always a place that we can move into to better ourselves. So right now I'm at this place of slowing down and practicing how To give myself a bit more grace because we're, we're always needing to self reflect. I'm not saying that these old attachment traumas and patterns and the hero within me, she's, she's not gone. Sometimes she takes a nap. Mm -hmm. She gets (laughs) Um, to do that now. She's in semi retirement. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) She gets to take a nap now. Yeah. What I have learned how to do is from this fully embodied self. I can call upon these different resources that I have with intentionality on purpose. So they're not in control of me. My reactivity isn't in control. It's the ability to be in the moment, to be in my body, to recognize the signals that my body is giving me and to with with an emotional intelligence, be able to Articulate and express what it is that I'm feeling and what I'm doing in a way that makes sense and in a way that I can be proud of. And I think the biggest thing of like where I am right now in my life is I have a little girl. She's, she says she's four years and eight months. Um, <laughs> and so I want her to feel for her entire life as much as she can. I want her to know that feeling as i am learning it now as an adult so i want to be able to model it i want to teach her how to slow down i want to teach her how to find peace within herself how to use emotions and uh in the meantime it's developing a healthier relationship where we're constantly me and my partner constantly working on ourselves and how to be how to work on our own ability to trust ourselves And how that shows up in our relationship. Because I believe the key to it all, like a synopsis of the whole book, this book and this journey and this protocol is one that unlocks your ability to trust yourself. That's what it's about. How do I trust myself again? Like one sentence, that's what it is. When you can trust yourself, you trust your emotions, you trust how you express your emotions, you trust that you can... Do hard things. You trust that you can handle your friends, your relatives, your partners, dark side. You trust that you can hold that without it representing something about you. Something shifts and your life changes. And- Now, as a mama, you are helping your
0: little girl not have to have that journey to self-trust be a reclamation, but rather just her birthright, something that she doesn't have to lose and refine, but something that she just, because you were born with it, I was born with it, we lost it along the way and journeyed back to it, and what a gift that she, you know, that she's getting the chance to hold Her sense of trusting herself right from the get go. You tell a beautiful story of her in the river towards the end of the book, (laughs) you know, just fully in her body, in herself, in the river. There she is.
1: Yeah. And the recognition that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that she won't get derailed from time to time, but, Mm -hmm. but instilling the ability to trust yourself from the beginning helps get back on track more quickly. And that's what I hope. That as she faces this life and as she gets derailed and experience her own attachment wounds that, you know, maybe it's happening in her origin story. We like, we're none of us are perfect, Um, but it's a relationship. It's whatever's coming in our future, that there is this core of self-trust that she gets to keep because she's learned how to do it that will pay it forward for future generations. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Let's do a
0: listener question before I let you go. Ah.
1: Okay. You ready? That's what I'm ready. Let's do it.
0: Switching gears. So we've got a Reimagining Love listener. She uses she, her pronouns, and she's writing to us from Dallas, Texas. And here's her struggle. She writes, my sister has had an on-again, off-again boyfriend for the past three years. He is verbally abusive. His values don't align with hers, and they constantly fight. I have even personally witnessed the verbal abuse. My sister is an incredibly smart woman who is driven and deserves someone similar to her in this aspect. I love my sister, and I want for the very best... For her, But I often find myself resenting her because she is staying with her boyfriend. I have told her that she deserves better, and she knows how I feel about him. How do I prevent my distaste for her boyfriend spreading to a distaste for my sister? How do I continue to love her while I despise her relationship
1: that means so much to her? Right. (sighs) Good one. Mm. I mean, I I actually talk about this. I can't remember if it's the intro or the prologue or something like that, but... The way that I hear stories like that when clients are sitting down and I'm like, I'm passing you the mic. What's going on? And they go through the spiel. My brain naturally goes what I call tethers and they, they branch out into all the different dynamics that are at play in this one problem. So she's feeling it as, as one problem and she, she articulates it. How do I? How do I still love my sister, even though I despise her boyfriend or something that I might be butchering that, but it's, it's it, that the essence is there. And for me, my brain actually goes like, there's so many dynamics here. And you, you know, you have the boyfriend and how he's showing up in his relationship with her sister, his girlfriend, and why that is, what is he reacting to in those moments that he is becoming verbally aggressive uh, what does that stem from? And then we have the sister who's clearly suffering from the verbal attacks and confiding in the listener. And we have the listener who wrote it. And uh, your listener is probably a safe person yeah. for her sister to be talking to about all these things. But it's also sounding like her sister is now, be- like your listener is becoming the dumping grounds for all of this pent up frustration and resentment That she's having for a boyfriend. Um, the boyfriend is playing a role in the relationship. The sister is playing a role in the romantic relationship. Right. And the listener is as well. Your listener is playing a role in the relationship as, as well. And your listener then, and and now like, now you are actually playing a role into, (laughs) because your listener is now coming to you with this question. So, Nobody is actually resolving this. We're sort of passing down. We're like passing down whatever this thing is, is getting like plopped down into the next person Hmm. without there being any resolve. So everybody's looking for the next person to hand off this, this blob of pain, whatever it might be, into the next person. And it makes sense. We're social creatures, right? We, we need each other to have this ebb and flow of communication and we want to help and we want to be of service and we care about each other. But there's this passing down of something that's happening. And the key common thread here also is resentment. Like boyfriend is holding something or he's not reacting that way for no reason. I like, you know, he's not here to speak for himself. So, you know, then his girlfriend. Is, re- is resenting the boyfriend, the listener's resenting her sister. And so what I what I think we need to first recognize taking that scam back and looking at all those tethers and that interplay of what's being passed down is nobody is actually doing their part in correcting the pattern mm-hmm. and everybody has their own individual role in taking on the roles that we take. What I'm thinking, like right off the bat, is first and foremost, we have to identify everybody in the system, but your listener is probably who's listening. Um, what role is she taking in this dynamic? And then I would ask, where are the boundaries? And how is the listener modeling what she expects from her sister? Is she actually modeling what she wants her sister to do?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are you allowed To be both a good sister and openly communicate how this role that you are taking is affecting who you are and how you feel. Are you allowed to be both? And the answer is yes, you're allowed to be both. And then I would ask, What does reconnecting look like? Meaning, what can we do to find new territory between you and your sister to remember that you are also more than this? You are more than this dumping ground, this venting container and to re-explore the sisterhood again. Beautiful. That was a little bit of a monologue, but... <laughs> no, it's it's just, it's so solid. It's so solid.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about this term we have in psychology called reactance, right? Mm-hmm. That it sounds like what the listener wants to do or has tried to do is like hold up the mirror and be like, sister, look, sister, look, he's abusing you. He's this, he's that. And we know from the process of reactance that the more our listener does that, she creates a situation where... Where sister will take the other part of the polarity, right? They get polarized mm-hmm. around this. The more our listener is like, you have to break up. You have to leave. He's bad. The more sister is going to hold the other part. Yeah, but he's hurting. He's this. He's that. And so it's just in addition to exhausting our listener, right? And, and that resentment that our listener feels is that cue from inside that something is off around boundaries, as you're saying. And it's, and so it's, it's also just going to be Ineffective, right? Because it's going to create a dynamic whereby sister can do nothing but take the other part of the pole and start to defend the boyfriend. And so can our listeners sit with the discomfort of just saying, yeah, I, I can see how that happened. Yeah, I see, I saw how he talked to you. I saw how you responded. I, yes, I... I don't I, I don't know what you're going to do about that, you know, and how might you resource yourself and what's the care that you might need for yourself rather than all this trying to prove.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I love that piece too, that sense of giving it back. Yeah. Yeah, what what can you do for yourself or the next time this happens, what's going to be something that you can do differently? Like we we we're we taught that as therapists how to do that, but I I think even in our personal relationships that's easier said than done. So that even that is a really good tool to be like you don't have to come off advice giving because that's going to get that that reactance that polarity as a response. But we can gently give back through this empathetic way of still showing support. You know that that does sound hard. What is something that can be done next time that will feel better?
0: Right. Yep. And then she's not, and then our listener maybe feels a bit less burdened by it.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Love it. Ultimately, the
0: reason that we want her to really be kind of creating some different boundaries so that she's not so depleted is so that if and when this relationship does end, our listener is in a place where she can be her sister's soft place to land, you know, because if she keeps up this. Kind of like desperate quest to prove the relationship is toxic and must end. Then by the time it does end, she may be in more of a like, I told you so, or it's about time or what took you so long. And so it's like our listener protecting her own energy, then I think we'll give her what she's gonna really potentially need down the road, which is to be able to be safe for her sister to turn to at that point. You know, if and when the relationship does end, if and when the sister does say, actually, I can't, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Then our listener can say, okay, what do you want? You want to go for a walk? You want a movie? You want, you know, what do you want and need from me? And I'll be with you in your heartbreak and recovery. Beautifully said. I agree. Yeah. Well, Dr. Copley, this has been a treat. Oh my gosh. I have loved spending this time with you. Thank you for your good work in the world and your bright light. Thank you for sharing this book with us and your time with us today. We'll put links to the book. The book is available wherever the books are sold. We're going to do a link Mm -hmm. to bookshop.org. We love to support all the indie booksellers. But how else can people get to know you and and what you're up to?
1: I think my biggest platform that I use the most and I update the most is Instagram. So you can follow me on that at DocCopley, D-O-C-C-O-P-L-E-Y. I also offer some trainings and workshops and groups online for topics related to this And to stay updated on that, you can visit my website, lauracopley.com. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Laura Copley, for joining me here on Reimagining Love. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Laura's new book, Loving You Is Hurting Me, a new approach to healing trauma bonds and creating authentic connection, visit the link in the show notes. And thank you also, once again, to our brave listener for writing in with that really important question. I wish you and your sister the best on your journeys. I will see you next week for another episode of Reimagining Love. And until next time, be well. Reimagining Love is produced and edited by Emily Reeves. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. Before you go, I want to share a podcast with you that I think you're really going to enjoy. Like Reimagining Love, this show is all about love and relationships, but with a rom-com twist. I'm very excited to introduce you to Meet Cute, a fantastic audio fiction podcast that's an escape into romantic fiction. Specializing in immersive audio romantic comedies, starring talent that you love like Amy Sedaris, Bridgerton's Charithra Chandran, Noah Galvin, and Pauline Chalamet. Meet Cute produces an original rom-com in six episodes each month. If you're intrigued, stick around to hear a short trailer and then go find Meet Cute wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.
1: Are you tired of waiting for sparks to fly on your dating app? Do you dream of running through airports to deliver an out-of-breath unplanned monologue? Then stop doom-scrolling and start listening to Meet Cute Rom-Coms, feel-good love stories that take you from chance encounter to grand romantic gesture in just 15 minutes. We're bringing rom-coms back. Get a brand new Meet Cute series on the first Tuesday of every month with new episodes twice a week. Fall in love with Meet Cute Rom-Coms wherever you find your podcasts. Is this where we kiss.